thank you for the love that you have and for the blessing that you are in this community to us, to individuals, to us as a, as a, as a group. I continue that blessing this morning. Continue to work as only you can do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So around 2001 was when I got to take my first missions trip and took a group of uh, teenagers over to Europe. I would not recommend that if you are a faint of heart, but um, you know it just kind of got my feet wet in missions, and, and I kind of loved it. We went to uh, the Czech Republic, and um, I got at that point I got involved with Atlantic Bridge, um, and so that was pre 9/11. And Europe was an interesting place because it was still 2001; the borders were still closed, which means that when you get on the train and you go from country to country, you stop at the border. Dudes get on the train with machine guns, and um, they're intimidating. I don't know if it's because they, have, they don't speak English, and, you know, and everybody should speak English because I'm an American and I'm privileged that way, um, but then they would take your passports, and they would go off the train, and you would wait, and you would wait, and you would wait, wondering if you were gonna end up in a gulag somewhere, and then they would come on to the train, with machine guns and a whole pile of passports, and one by one, they would look. Oh, and they give you your passport back. They were in no rush, and you dare not rush them. They had machine guns. So this was, this was kind of my intro to um, missions and Atlantic Bridge, and, and it's very different now. Uh, I worked with that agency for about 10 years, and I used to go over by myself at times, and what they used to have me do is go into high schools and talk about this idea of cross-cultural exchange, of getting to know other cultures, of getting to know other faiths. Now, in the high schools, I couldn't, I couldn't talk about God or Jesus or anything like that. It had to be very neutral because they don't allow that stuff in the high school. But what we used to do is then invite them uh, out after school to their favorite pub. Yes, teenagers would hang out in Europe in pubs. Now, I know what you're thinking. How awesome of a ministry is that? But it, it could be difficult sometimes. Um, and so we would kind of gather these teenagers, and then we would start, and we were able to talk about God. And we would be able to talk about faith. And I would ask them all kinds of questions, and they would ask me all kinds of questions, and they would make fun of me because I'm a Christian, and Christians are Puritans, and, and we don't do anything, we don't have any fun, blah, blah, blah. It's just a whole big misconception of Christianity and of God, in part due to the idea of communism and how it controlled all of Eastern Europe during those, those days. And so it, during these conversations, it was my first time of, of really hearing or understanding this idea of creating a God in our own image, creating a God that was kind of convenient. Because what, what I found was if, if the kids weren't atheists, which, which many were, they just didn't believe in any God, um, then the common phrase that I would hear is, well, I have my own beliefs about spirituality. I have my, I have my own beliefs about God and who God is. And when you press that question a little bit, like where does that come from? What do you base that on? It always comes back to a God who is comfortable, a God who really doesn't demand a lot from you, uh, a God who you can kind of put into a box, a God who is there when you need him or her, 
But when you don't, that that God just kind of hovers around like a little puppy waiting for you to call on, and then that God is is, is up and and running and and ready to do your bidding. And, And what I found was these kids who had their own idea of spirituality, their own idea of God, have created their own God. And, and it has nothing to do with the God of Scripture or the God of the Bible. They've heard of Jesus. Um, some believe he said who he was, but again, they've created a Jesus who is not the Jesus of, of Scripture. Now, this is nothing new in the world. In fact, uh, some time ago, there was this movement, and we're talking first century, called uh, Martianism, and it has nothing to do with little green men with antenna. Um, he was a heretic who said that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not compatible with each other. And so he really had to come down on one side or the other. And what he did was he kind of picked and chose what parts of the Bible he would want his followers to engage. And so he pretty much did away with most of, almost all of the Old Testament. He did away with all of the Gospels except for Luke, and he only held on to a few of, the, of Paul's letters. And so there's this heresy being taught in the church. And this, this took root for a couple hundred years, this, this separation of God, this, this misunderstanding of God, this um, creation of a God in our own image. And, 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 it's, and it's, it's been this way for, through, even, even within churches, Christians will separate Old Testament, New Testament God. Like the Old Testament God, he's, he's crabby, he's always angry, and he just wants people dead. And so let's focus on the New Testament God because he's kind of lovey-dovey and you know, the picture of him is you know, he has long hair and he puts product in his hair and he's, his beard is well-trimmed and, and that's the God we want to hold on to. Or, or if it is the same God, then the Old Testament God, well, he obviously went through some type of, of anger management and now he's, he's gotten better and now he's the love God. And so there's this disconnect about who God is, even within the church. There are way too many people who are creating a God in their own image, a God who who fits nicely into our lives. I would say sometimes it's a God who fits nicely into our sin because God wouldn't really demand anything of you. Now, the doctrinal, doctrinal position of our church is this, that we hold both the Old Testament and the New Testament as the inerrant, infallible word of God, period. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, this is the word of God in its entirety. It is sacred, it is holy, and it is worthy of our time, it is worthy of our attention because God is revealing himself to us through these pages. Now, yes, in the New Testament, we have this fuller revelation of God. Because, and because of Jesus, we, li- we don't live under the law anymore, but we live under grace. But as far as God goes, he is the same Old Testament, New Testament, yesterday, today, and forever. God will not change. Now, personally, I love grace. Like, grace is one of my favorite things because, well, you can ask my wife, I need a lot of grace. Um, and, I, and, and it's by, by Christ that I have received grace and I have received forgiveness and I have received mercy. 
And I hope that last week you heard in this, in our talk about Sinai and Zion, uh, that we no longer need to stay away from the holiness of the Lord because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We are invited to boldly, confidently come to the throne of grace. But what I find is that there are way too many Christians sitting in a church to this morning who they know Jesus, but, but, they, but they don't know God. And so they've created this very comfy, Hallmark-esque, they've romanticized the whole thing that God came and died to meet my needs because it really is all about me anyway, and you can tag along if you would like. Even my salvation is about God. It's not about me. It's about his grace. It's about his mercy. And so we've watered it down. And when we water who the Lord is down, we begin to minimize sin in our own lives. We begin to minimize our, our walk with him, this journey, this gracious journey that we've been invited to walk with him on. And we will become distracted by all of the things that the world wants to distract us with. The sin that is so prevalent is so distracting to the Christian. And so we have this misinterpretation of God. Let me, let's look at Deuteronomy really quick. Here's how Moses describes God. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now I'm thinking you're not gonna find that in a Hallmark card unless it's in the section of um, get back at your enemy and, and feel good that God is going to do that. This is not, you're not gonna find this on the t-shirt. You're not gonna find this on the coffee cup. What is being described here is the God of Sinai, the God that we kind of touched on last week in Exodus. Let me just read for you a little bit again to remind you. Exodus chapter 19, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. This is the God that they're describing. Everyone in the camp trembled because the Lord was descending on Mount Sinai. Then Moses led, to the, led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended from it, descended on it like, uh, with fire, yeah. The smoke billowed up from it like a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. This is an earthquake of the holiness of God. Our God is a consuming fire. This is what, the, this is what Moses is beginning to get at. Earthquakes and volcanoes. And that same God is the God of the New Testament, the God that we come into this room and worship. That same holiness is the holiness that we can come into contact with because of Jesus and the cross. And so we, we hold this vision, this, this tension of the God of Sinai and the God of Zion we hold this tension that our God is a consuming fire and our God is consuming love. See, this is the answer to the watered-down version that we have made God out to be. You know, Jesus is our homeboy. No, he's not. He's God. 
And I understand that, and, and, and I know I kind of pick on Toby Mac a little bit for that, but, and I like Toby Mac because he's kind of funny, but, but, but we, we just, we forget the sacredness and the holiness of, of who he is. Nothing in the Bible is there just for the sake of making a good story. And a picture is worth a thousand words. A picture in, in scripture is worth 10 million words. And that's why God showed them, this is my holiness on Sinai. Don't come near it. Because if you, if you step foot even on the base of this mountain, you got to die. That's how holy this is. That's how sacred this place is. And then as I said last week, we've been invited, as the writer said, to Mount Zion. It's not a new God. It's not a different God. It's not a, a more controlled God. God has now completed his revelation to his people. We see God's love in Christ. We see God take all of our sin upon himself on the cross as he stretched out his arms and that he suffered and then he died. See, this is the same all-consuming fire and this is the same all-consuming love. And for those who would put their faith in Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, we know salvation. We have been saved. You see, it's Jesus plus faith. Not your good works, not how many Bible studies you go to, not how many things you can remember, not how many. It's Jesus and Jesus only. Amen. This is the love of God. And it's the same consuming fire. And it's the same consuming love. Now, all this to say that in those two mountains, Sinai and Zion, God has revealed himself to us, the church. He's not just the God of one side. He's not just, that's the old one. We don't have to worry about that or deal with that or understand that. We just gotta get with the new one. They are both the same. And when you begin to understand the holiness of Mount Sinai, that picture in Exodus then you can begin to understand the grace that's been given to us on the cross. You begin to understand just how much mercy and love that God has for you, for his people, for all people, that all would know his son and come to a saving knowledge of that. When you understand Sinai, man, grace is just that much more amazing. Grace is that much more scandalous. And so as we move toward it, as, as the author wrote last week, I just want to refresh your memory. He said, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is our invitation to the grace and the love of Zion. Same God, though. Same amazing, unbelievable, untouchable holiness. But we've been invited because of Christ. And we're journeying on, on this path 
toward Zion. And now the writer of Hebrews, he wants to share with this church kind of the posture that we're to take on this journey. Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 27. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. There's a lot going on in these few verses. And there's this logical argument that's taking place that says what's true in the lesser case is true in the greater case. And so God put out a warning at Sinai, this, this earthly um, sign of his power, his might, his majesty and holiness. And, and the people freak out, okay? They, they go to Moses. Moses, listen, man, you tell us what God says. We don't want to hear his voice because we're going to die. So you just tell us. There's this fear. And God gave the law. And for the next 40 years or however many years are left, they wandered in the desert and they refused to obey the word of God. They continually went their own way, did their own thing, thought they knew best, and finally God just gets so kind of almost fed up with them, he says, okay, here's the way this is gonna play out. Everybody that's over 20 years old, he ain't making it into the promised land, except for Caleb and for Joshua. So, if you, so anybody who is 20 years old at that moment in the desert, because they rejected, they refused the word of God, they would die in the desert a million plus bodies buried from a nation. And so, if such a punishment took place for disobeying God's earthly message, how much more severe will the punishment be if you refuse the message from heaven of his grace through his son, Jesus Christ? See, the word became flesh and has dwelt among us. That's what John writes in, in, the, in chapter one of his gospel. And this has been the message of Hebrews all along. Chapter two, he says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? It's what scripture teaches. If you reject the grace of God by rejecting Jesus Christ, on judgment day, you will stand before that terrible, horrifying scene of Sinai. It's what the scripture teaches, that you will be separated from God for eternity. And so I, I think as I was kind of churning this over, do we really care? I mean, we're in, right? We're Christians. But do we care that there are people in our sphere of influence that on that day, that dreaded day, that they will stand before an all-consuming fire and be cast from his presence for eternity. The people who have rejected the gospel, that have rejected Christ, will spend eternity, which we have no real idea how long that is because our brains are finite. But eternity has this feeling of forever like waiting in the line at the DMV forever. 
And see, this transcends belief. God's word is final. And, and what I mean by that is, as I spoke to these kids in Europe, well, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in, in that whole Jesus thing. So it really doesn't make any difference to me. Wrong. It doesn't matter what you believe. Every person will stand before the King of Kings. Every person will stand before the Lord of Lords. And we will be judged in this way. Son, daughter, did you receive my grace by receiving Jesus? Or have you rejected my grace by rejecting my son? That is the criteria of judgment. Not how much you put in the joy box, not how many Bible verses you've memorized, not how many good things you can muster up in your life. Did you receive my favor through Christ or did you reject my favor by rejecting my son? That is final. That is God's judgment. And this is what the author is getting at here. And then he continues, uh, he continues in verse 26. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth at Sinai. But now he's promised once more will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. This is, this is getting to end time stuff. This is getting Jesus is coming back type of stuff. The redemption of all of this is the destruction of an old order, so God brings to us this new heaven and this new earth. God's word made flesh will shake the heavens and the earth all that is seen and unseen will be rocked to its core. The psalmist writes in Psalm 102, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded. This is, this is the end time stuff. This is God shaking things up. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking, oh, silly bald pastor, this is Old Testament. We now live in the New Testament. And I would say to you, have you not been listening to me for the last 15 minutes? But because I want to help you along in this journey, let me show you a verse that Peter writes in his second letter that references this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That means you don't know. That means you're not gonna see the blood moon, the green moon, the blue moon. It means we don't know when it's going to come, but guaranteed it will come. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed. This is New Testament, okay? And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed, and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, Christian, where righteousness dwells. Think of it. 100,000 million galaxies with 100,000 million-ish stars and each of those 100,000 million galaxies burned up by fire because of the word of God, Jesus Christ. And the people of God, the church, 
those who remain faithful in Christ, we cannot be shaken. But everything else will disappear. Everything else will go. And then, upon that day, upon that time, the words of John in Revelation will hold true. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This is good news for the follower of Jesus Christ. This allows us to stand firm in the midst of whatever the world wants to throw at us, because God is in control. God is in control. If your person got in as president, don't pat yourself on the back. God is in control. If your person didn't get in, don't be so angry. God is in control. And see, that's why we don't spew politics from the pulpit, because we belong to a kingdom. You don't vote in a king. Jesus is king. We stand firm, though the world around us trembles and shakes. And we get to tell people that God's desire is for you to know him. That you would know grace and mercy and favor. Don't make it about fire and brimstone. Make it about the love of God and and, and the wholeness that God wants for people in their lives. Yes, our God is a consuming fire. And that same God is an all-consuming love that he sent his son. While we were all sinners, he sent his son that whoever, whoever, whomever believes will have eternal life. Do not refuse him who speaks. And then he'll continue on. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that's our kingdom, church, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For again, he says, our God is a consuming fire. This is New Testament. Not our God was, our God at times could be, Every once in a while he is. No, our God is a consuming fire. The God of Zion, all-consuming love, is the same God of Sinai, an all-consuming fire. And our worship of him should be in a posture of reverence and awe. When we stand before the Lord in worship in this community, We join thousands upon thousands of angels in a joyful assembly worshiping our creator, God. The unapproachable Sinai with its consuming fire and the approachable Zion with its consuming love. This is the tension that we hold. This is the God that we worship. Now, I I might offend some people with this, but it's okay because it's, It's probably been a few hours since that's taken place. (laughs) That time that we worship in the morning at 10.15 when church starts is not just background noise so you can sneak in late. It's not background noise so you can kind of high-five people on the way in and nobody's really going to hear you. 
It's a time that we come and join thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly worshiping the Lord our God. It's not that time that we just kind of throw at the beginning so you can all get here on time. It's worship. And we worship with awe. Not like awe, but awe. We should all be going, awe! And reverence that you have been given grace and mercy to come boldly to the throne of grace, that you now can walk into the holiness of the living God. That's reverence to understand that. And when you begin to understand the vastness of who God is, the, 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 the God of the scripture, the God of this Bible, and not one that we, we make up, it's then that we can come before him with that heart of thankfulness and reverence and awe. You see, as a church, we need to have a very strong understanding of who the Lord is. We can't deny holiness. We can't deny the all-consuming fire of God and just say, well, he's all love. God will be the same forever, and he is the same forever. It's part of who he is. And when we begin to understand the consuming fire of the Lord and the consuming love of the Lord, it begins to change the way we live. It begins to change our heart. It begins to change the way we worship, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money. It begins to shape our relationships, our discipleship. It begins to shape our ethics and our moralities and just the rhythms that we naturally want to live in. This is not you trying harder to be a better person. This is you understanding who the God of Scripture is and what grace and mercy has been poured out upon us. We, church, we belong to an unshakable kingdom. The ground may just be a mess, vibrating violently. The world may be falling apart, but the kingdom of God is unshakable. Unshakable. And this is where we stand firm. This is the power of our God. And so as we journey toward Zion, Don't forget about Sinai, in part because some people that we know will stand before that God on that our God on that day, and they will know what that all-consuming fire is. They will know what it means to be separated from Him for eternity. We, church, have been called to follow, to worship, to have reverence and awe. We've been called to focus on Christ and Christ alone and share the God of Scripture, not the God who we want to invent, the God of Scripture. So, Father, thank you for the revelation that you give us in your word. Thank you for the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Father, empower us and embolden us to share the all-consuming love before it's too late. And I pray this in the name of your Son, who is the fountain of all holiness, who is the perfecter and originator 
of all, of all faith and mercy and grace. Amen.